Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the place to discover more about engineering tech in offshore renewables and how we will meet our future energy needs. My name is Lorna Bennett, Project Engineer at ORE Catapult, the UK's leading research and innovation centre for offshore renewables. Across 2023, we are celebrating our 10-year anniversary. Over the last decade, we have seen a remarkable transformation in the offshore renewable energy sector and ORE Catapult has been at the very heart of that. Today we have a new episode in the mini-series, In Conversation With, where I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Sir Jim MacDonald, Principal and Vice-Chancellor of the University of Strathclyde and one of Scotland's most accomplished engineers. In today's discussion, we'll dive into more detail of Sir Jim's career and standout moments. We'll also explore what the last decade of engineering and innovation has achieved in offshore renewable energy and what opportunities and challenges lie ahead. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your background and career? Thank you. So uh, I was brought up in Govan, which is the shipbuilding area of Glasgow, and I'm happy to say is returning to be one of the shipbuilding areas with BE Systems and, uh, and Babcock and others. So I was brought up in Govan, destined originally to follow my father and my two brothers into Fairfield shipyards, because back then there was lots of jobs around and uh, I had an opportunity to leave school when I was 15 and attempted to leave school when I was 15, but failed because my big brother persuaded me to use a euphemism that I should return to school and finish my hires. But that time, my father sadly had passed away, so there wasn't the steadying hand of a dad around, but there was a steadying hand of a big brother, let me tell you. So I came to Strathclyde University. I had two very good teachers at St. Gerard's and Govan a physicist and a mathematician, pointed me towards electrical and electronic engineering. And I went to Strathclyde and graduated, always with an intention to start working because we didn't have very much money. I was getting engaged. My wife and I had to start saving up for a house. And although I was offered to do a PhD, I left and actually joined the Scottish Electrical Training Scheme, which got me placements with North of Scotland Hydroelectric Board, now SSE. The South of Scotland Electricity Board, now Scottish Power, Marconi, I went to a Parsons Peebles Transformer Manufacturer, so I was always going into power engineering. Did that and eventually took up a role as a, a protection systems engineer with the Scottish Power, SSEB as was, and worked there for seven or eight years. Did my master's degree with their support, which was great because I still was interested in research. And then started my PhD on a part-time basis, which was bad planning because my wife then delivered our twin daughters at that point. So my time started to become rather Very pressed. short, gosh. And then what, when you got your PhD, what next? There was a programme called New Blood Lecturers, which was a UK government plan to get relatively early career individuals to come from industry to go back into university to help shape the education and research programmes to be relevant. It suited my interests very, very well. So I came into Strathclyde with the intention of being in here for three years and I told the company to keep my seat warm for me because I would be back after I'd done what was expected of me. But of course that's 35 years ago because I, I came in to Strathclyde, really enjoyed the engagement with the students really get interested in the research process and really enjoyed the intellectual freedom that I had to pursue things that were of interest to me but which I believed would make a difference to the engineering community and provide solutions. So did that and then a very important moment for me in my career I, I successfully applied for and took up the Rolls-Royce professorship in electrical systems. That was 
not a insignificant handle and it's a very significant company to have funded the chair. And then through various parts of my journey, I became director of the Centre for Electrical Power Engineering. I set up the Rolls-Royce University Technology Centre in Electrical Systems, became head of department in Triple E, and then latterly I became principal at the university in March 2009, which was really from an academic point of view, me reaching the higher end of my academic career. So what's been your biggest standout moment? Well, it's presumptuous to say it, but there are several. I mean, uh, getting the Rolls-Royce chair was a big deal because I got it when I was age 35, which was early for the professorial appointment. Setting up my research group, I started with three PhD students, three of whom are now very significant academics in their own right. Professor Graham Burt, who is director of the Rolls-Royce University Technology Centre, director of the Institute for Energy and Environment. Professor Stephen MacArthur, who's now executive dean for engineering and one of the university's associate principals. And another student, well, now a very senior executive in GE, Brian Gemmell. So that was the kernel of me really getting some independence to pursue my own research activities. When I left that role to become principal, I left behind me about 25 staff and over 100 researchers. So it grew very significantly. There are various touch points as we go in terms of academic contributions, particularly around distributed generation, advanced protection and control, the use of artificial intelligence to automate electrical power systems, all the way through to power systems economics. I finished my PhD on a secondment to MIT. So I worked with some you know, heroes of mine from an academic point of view, and I had the dual joy of being accepted by them into their group to work in power system economics, which was a flight of fancy on my part. I could have given myself a more straightforward topic, I have to say, because I'm an engineer. And I had to learn about economics and global welfare and the uh, price elasticities. Why keep it simple, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then other, probably more recently, the pinnacle of my non-academic but engineering professional career is that I became president of the Royal Academy of Engineering in 2019, which effectively makes me the senior engineer in the UK, which sounds immodest, but it's really president of what is the ultimate National Academy for Engineers around which the, the 42 professional engineering institutions collaborate and engage. So that's been effectively my, a, a real pinnacle for me. And of course, I get to work with some absolutely magnificent people there, you know, some of the world's best engineers, not just the nation's engineers. The biggest thing I, I've been able to do professionally is to, to make a contribution to forming the next generation of engineers through education and making meaningful contributions to solving electrical systems, power and energy problems. And personally, the biggest contribution I've made is marrying my wife and having three children. And all my three children happen to be engineers. Well, that leads us on very nicely to our next point of discussion, which is the offshore renewable energy sector has grown at a tremendous pace and with the target set by the UK government for the turn of the decade and by 2050, this growth is set to increase well, we're seeing technology advancements, infrastructure overhauls and huge deployment capacity. The industry must not overlook the workforce that we need to build up to achieve these targets. In previous interviews, you've mentioned the importance of higher education and the role that you've played in improving access from all backgrounds. Can you talk a little bit more about why access to education is essential to building the skilled workforce that we require? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just reflecting on the point that you've made, I think we're well through a tipping point in the UK now, and I think we're seeing that 
triggering all over the globe in terms of a commitment to renewable energy. It's been talked about for decades, but what we might call the maturity and the sophistication of the technological solutions and the products and the increasing industrial infrastructure means that people now see a pathway to having renewables at the heart of an overarching energy strategy or an energy policy. The offshore renewable energy catapult, I think, can rightfully, they're a modest organisation, but they can rightfully claim, I think, a disproportionate contribution to supporting the UK position itself for what should be and must be an economic opportunity. I wring my hands a little bit that the UK didn't quite capture all of the economic benefit it might have done in the first wave of wind technology, you know, over the past 25 years or so. But it's absolutely the right time now for us to kick on, particularly for offshore wind, and in particular for floating offshore wind, to make sure that we make things in the UK, get the manufacturing base going, build the supply chain, all of which, to back to your question, is going to be predicated in having the skills base that attracts internal investment and foreign direct investment as the big, hopefully, OEMs come here and base their manufacturing plant, not just in Germany or in France or in Scandinavia, but in Scotland and across the UK. And, and we, we see that starting over the past few years. So, I mean, why, uh, you know, this widening access, widening participation? I mean, it's fundamental to an inclusive economy. We mustn't forget that Well, there's technological innovation and there's economic impact to be had and growth opportunities to be had. We, we talk about the just transition and we should talk about the just transition. For me, the most just transition is to give someone a job that's well paid, that's long lasting and gives people an opportunity to develop their careers. So here in my own university at Strathclyde, amongst the research intensives, we take the highest number of young people from the two most challenged quintiles in the Scottish economy. There's a term called the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation. So SIMD not to 20 is the most challenged lower quintile. Then there's SIMD 21 to 40, which is the next quintile. So we take around 1,300 young people from those communities every year, and yet, we maintain we're fifth highest entrance requirements in the UK. So it makes a falsehood of the notion that if you're taking young people, not just young people, but people from those backgrounds, you must be lowering your standards. We do have contextual admissions, do have support policies when they get here, but we find them, we get them in, we keep them in, and then we launch them into their careers. So the retention is important. And Strathclyde is not the only place that does that. Most universities have authentic commitments to that widening access. The colleges are extremely important. You know, people that are involved in modern apprenticeships, in other degree programs that feed these great young people into jobs, maybe send them on their own journey to universities is key. But if, if, you, if you think about this, the untapped capability is a missed opportunity. But renewables gives a whole platform for educational capabilities skilled workforce, technicians, operators, designers, those with bachelor's degrees, the research skilled end, and the piece of work I was involved in 18 months ago around the strategic impact assessment for floating offshore wind. There's a potential for two to 3,000 permanent jobs, and in terms of construction phase, somewhere between five and 10,000 jobs as we build this fleet of offshore wind and respond to the opportunities through Scotland, for example. So. You can tell I am very passionate about this because it's leaders' responsibility 
to put plenty of ladders behind them, plenty of ropes, and plenty of opportunity for folk to get onto the opportunity swing of things. And renewables, if, they, if we don't create the skills base in Scotland, we're not going to create the economic opportunity, and the same is true across the rest of the UK. Yeah, I think there was a, an IMEC-E report that came out last year saying that they now estimate up to 100,000 jobs in offshore wind by 2030 as well. So it's just unbelievable the opportunities that we need to try and make sure that we create and retain here. And we've worked with your, your engineering skills academy and things as well. And I think was it the, the Green Futures project that you had running and things. So I know we're working closely together on a lot of things. And I myself, I'm very passionate about encouraging STEM and education, do a lot of work with outreach to schools. Um, I'd like to know what your thoughts are on embedding these options as early as possible and how crucial that is for encouraging the next generation at an early stage. Sure, and there's a multiplicity of programmes. I mean, I would argue sometimes there's so much activity, it becomes very crowded. Yeah, teachers become unable to choose or know they, where to start, they don't they, sometimes? With, with, again, well-intended organisations and institutions offering help. So let's go to the positive before I, I give a sobering challenge. The earlier we attract youngsters into being excited about STEM, the better. Uh, people might argue that, you know, you really should start getting to them, you know, about 13 or 14 when they're making their high school choices as they go in that path. Because it's not easy, but it's, it's straightforward to get youngsters excited about it. You know, you get in talking to them about space technology or AI or robotics, people get really excited. Aerospace, how the planes work, etc. But we need to do that. But I think we need to focus down on what the collective academic and industrial community can do better together. So I mentioned the Royal Academy of Engineering. There's a piece of work that we're now evolving rather quickly about, for example, putting sustainability into the heart of all engineering education. And likewise, you know, the IET, the IMECI, the Institute of Civil Engineers all have you know, very focused, well-resourced themes and projects to get into schools. That will continue. We shouldn't do anything other than encourage that. However, that's not mutually exclusive from getting much better coordination. We don't want teachers or guidance teachers to be drinking from a fire hose. We want them to have a much clearer picture of what the opportunities are for engineering. And one of the best things that I've seen in recent years, uh, coming back to the Royal Academy, is a programme called This Is Engineering. And it's a whole se a series of video vignettes, maybe two or three minutes long. And it's populated by young engineers. Very diverse group, ethnic diversity, gender diversity, background in terms of geography, socioeconomic experiences. And they tell the stories about why engineering is important. And for me, that's the promoters that we need to get in front of this audience. They're inspirational people. I see them, I have the pleasure of meeting them, and they inspire me, and because they're in that age group, and they have such a social mission to make a change, that engineering no longer becomes that tough maths and physics and mechanical tutorial problems. It becomes a means to making a difference. I think every generation improves, you know, decade on decade. The generation we have today are much, much more socially aware than my generation, and they have a commitment to make an impact that touches people's lives. But that story being told by people in their mid-twenties to late-twenties is much more credible than someone at my end of my career talking about it. Of course, I'll tell the story as often as I can. But then you look at other assets. I mean, I used to be chairman of the Glasgow Science Centre, and getting that door opened wide 
working with the Glasgow City Council to provide free transport to get kids from some of these challenged communities. And it's sometimes it's as simple as that, getting the facilitation of exposure and participation in some of these programmes. The, the Glasgow Science Centre, which is a wonderful national asset, and it's one of the best in the UK, you know, just in Scotland, rang a programme a few years ago called Powering the Future. You know, SSE were involved, Scottish Power, everything from hydropower to wind power to nuclear to what it meant for thermal stations right through to hydrogen. It's the old cliche, but it's worthwhile repeating. It's not about force feeding youngsters to be engineers. It's about lighting a beacon of their interest in engineering being a solution and not a hard set of subjects. And that's down to teachers along with universities and colleges to bring people in and support them and live up to their expectations of what engineering is going to do for them. And let's be clear, there are hundreds of thousands of engineering jobs, not only for the most highly educated engineers, but for technician engineers and apprentices. And if we're not careful to the point that you made earlier, that could become an inhibitor to capturing the economic value for the UK. So we need to make sure that the skilled workforce is there because that's one of the magnets for attracting foreign direct investment as well as supporting indigenous companies. I think because that, that academic knowledge is a very different skill to the hands-on technical fixing, building things, the, the apprenticeships offering. Yeah, that's why, it gets forgotten said, about so much, doesn't it? Yeah, well, the Engineering Academy is a perfect example of that, where these students not only get the advantage of a high-quality degree programme, but they go back to those companies that are sponsoring them and they work with them for 10 weeks or so during the summer. As I say, there are many programmes. The IET Power Academy I was involved in designing 15 years or so ago, uh, and it was to respond to the demographic problem in the utilities at the time, where at post-privatisation, there was a approaching an exodus of talent out of the companies as they right-sized. I think that was the term that was used, and they pushed some of the technical design to their suppliers, when in fact the suppliers weren't really in place to do the design of an overarching energy system. So the key thing here is that the IET recognised this, put together a consortium of about 20 companies, utilities, OEMs, other power and energy companies, to take an industry and a sector-wide approach to building the next cohort of leaders and high-quality engineers and technologists. And it's been fantastically successful. It continues to this day with companies sponsoring students through their four or five year programme and very importantly to give them that summer placement in the company so that when they graduate after four years in a bachelor's degree or five years in MEng, they're ready to go because they've been in the workplace, they've got a network of support and they've understood how to translate their engineering education into professional activity. Yeah, I think that, that link is crucial, isn't it? To one getting the, the skills and the experience of having worked in a workplace, but actually even just to understand what work is like compared to academic study, it can be so different and to know where what you've learned actually fits into the real world can be missing in some of that study, study, study. And I think that's why This Is Engineering, those videos is, is so good as well, because it gives you such a, a wide range of totally unexpected careers where engineering can take you. And the, the Royal Academy of Engineering, they've done so much work to combat the stereotype of the 
greasy, dirty mechanic with a hard hat standing in the middle of the field <laughs> doing you don't know what. This. Well, I, I mean, it'd be interesting to note that uh, or just about to depart UK government's chief scientific advisor, Sir Patrick Valence, has been a fantastic advocate for engineering and science in the heart of government. And only today, or yeah, and that is the date, uh, the UK government published its new science and technology framework within which you can see a redoubling of the understanding and the commitment to make the UK a science, engineering and technology superpower. But we're gonna to have to do it at pace because this is a global race around strategic advantage, whether it's in green tech, advanced control, quantum, five and six G communications. And at the heart of all of that is we can't deliver any of that without engineering and technology. And the penny's now dropping and we've got Scottish Government about to publish their innovation strategy. I was involved in co-chairing the steering group that's produced that report and the UK government are, are making this real commitment now to using innovation at the heart of economy and that's where catapults become extremely important. The offshore renewable energy catapult is a, is a decade now in activity and in many ways simply because we've got alignment between government priorities We've got a degree of stability in terms of the commitment to renewable energy, which is important. And we've got the imperative that we don't have so many levers to pull that we can't afford to pull hard on the innovation agenda, particularly in key sectors such as renewable energy. Yeah, it's a very good point. I am just made, yes, ORE Catapult is celebrating its 10th year anniversary this year. And since 2013, we've seen a 70% reduction and the cost of offshore wind and installed capacity grow from 3.5 gigawatts to soon be over 14 gigawatts. We're very proud to have played our part in this renewable revolution and take your comments with great gratitude. But Sir Jim, you also played a crucial role in the establishment of ORE Catapult back in 2013. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Why you got involved and why offshore renewable energy is so important? So I was involved in the start up the high value manufacturing catapult as well so i was sold on the idea that this was a way to accelerate and and uh, deepen the uk economy commitment to innovation at that time the uk government was thinking hard about how renewables could be a core part of the uk economy and how we could make some of that economic value sticky and not just project development much of which went abroad in terms of manufacturing and service I have been cited on the offshore renewable energy theme being brought forward and in consultation with a number of other key actors, you know, Colin Hood, who was the inaugural chair of the offshore renewable energy catapult. Colin Hood and I worked together for, for many, many years as well. So in many ways, Team Scotland saw an opportunity to position the assets in Scotland, intellectual assets, physical assets, the commitment by the Scottish Government to renewables, that is important. And the agency's firepower, e.g. Scottish Enterprise Skills Development Scotland. And we went to participate in a TSB slash Innovate UK workshop for a couple of days where the, the UK Government was hoping to have a sort of self-organising community that would form the consortium that then would go forward subject to approval to fund that. It was at that meeting that a few stars aligned with NAREC, for example, in the, what I might call, the white space of the heavily constructed programme, we found ourselves 
meeting regularly, having side conversations about the art of the possible. And in many ways, we brought forward a strategic plan. It wasn't complete at the end of those two days, but it was enough to persuade the Technology Strategy Board staff that there was enough here to merit further development to produce the plan to create the offshore renewable energy catapult. It also seemed to me entirely appropriate it was headquartered in Scotland, given the level of natural resource we had, given the leadership that we had from a sort of policy point of view or a public service point of view, academic and, and growing industry base. So having been in at the start, I feel very much committed and part of the extended family of the offshore renewable energy catapult. And its journey over the past 10 years is remarkable because over the first five years, the government's policy waxed and waned about its you know, authentic commitment to renewables. And I'm happy to say now, to some extent, for some challenging reasons, you know, climate change, it's the existential challenge of the 21st century. And people are realizing now that renewables aren't a nice to have, they're a must have. And if you add in there the imperative of innovation as a driver for economic opportunity and growth in a sustainable way, then the offshore renewable energy catapult, if we didn't have it now, it would have to be invented. And that's important for me to have seen the catapult come through challenging times, affirm its position, and then clearly now be a very high performing catapult in that stable of several catapults. And it's very central, as people will be aware, with the reconfiguration of bays now, with net zero and energy security as a separate department within the, the government. Yeah, it's very true. And you've already started reflecting back on the last 10 years where we've had some amazing milestones absolutely smashed. But what have been your key reflections in terms of the engineering and innovation within offshore renewable energy over the last decade? Things that have happened which are very important is the offshore renewable energy catapult merger with our colleagues in Blythe and NAREC. That physical infrastructure to complement the knowledge base that's represented by the catapult staff is a very powerful combination. Know-how, expertise, a driver for innovation and physical infrastructure to accelerate the industrial partners delivery of innovative technology and systems and de-risking the participation in the innovation journey for small companies, SME, supply chain partners. So that, that NAREC meets with the catapult that to become you know the expanded catapult was extremely important. But for me, most importantly, it's the response to the scale of the opportunity. As you said, you know, driving 70% of the cost out of offshore energy. Catapult can't claim all of that, but it can claim a significant part in acting to create the ecosystem within which industrial innovators, public sector investment, academic groups focus in on the particular requirement, i.e. better technology, scaled turbine design, much better deployment and after service. So lots to celebrate. Yeah, I think, as you say, that criticality of being able to test technologies and help SMEs, startups over that valley of death. Um, and we've got the, the, the floating offshore wind innovation centre now being set up at the energy transition zone in Aberdeen as well. And you've already mentioned a few times about the, the importance of the, the future developments of floating wind, particularly for Scotland and the, the economic opportunities for the development and 
hopefully manufacture of those here as well. But before we wrap up today's episode, I'd like to take a look forward at what's to come for offshore renewable energy by the end of the decade and beyond. What are the biggest imminent challenges and opportunities you see facing the industry over the coming years? Now there's a question. Uh, so there are many, many challenges, as there always are in any growing sector. For me, there's going to be have to, consistency of policy commitment here, evolution of regulation that supports innovation, the building of a skilled workforce, and making sure that the catapult's position is reinforcing this. But for the sector itself, looking at Scotland alone, we need to convert those 17 projects into real deployment. We have to accelerate the benefits of innovative technologies, whether it's at scale, performance, efficiency, new drivetrains, new materials and blades, getting a, you know, another significant increase on, on the size of these devices, but seeing it in the context of an overarching energy system. And you mentioned the other catapults. If we're going to capture a large proportion of those 26 gigawatts of Scott wind potential, we're going to have to have an offshore grid infrastructure. And Bewley Denny, they took 10 years to get through planning. Uh, so if we were trying to get to 2030, the starting pistol has gone on this one. So we really need to now accelerate to see how these offshore wind deployments actually sit within an interconnected energy system. Peak demand in Scotland is no more than six gigawatts. With the installed capacity we've got and the potential we've got for Scotland, we'll have 30 to 35 gigawatts of energy potential with very little able to get through the interconnectors, let alone supply our own demand. So for me, the offshore renewable energy is critical for the UK to deliver its net zero targets, but it has to be seen in the context of an overarching energy system. And that's where the UK government and the Scottish government, the Scottish government's new draft energy strategy, talks a lot about energy systems. And the UK government is committing, it seems increasingly, to recognise that this is an energy system within which we've got the power sources themselves, increasingly offshore wind, but onshore wind is coming through again, coupled with energy storage, coupled with green hydrogen, electrification of transport systems, more energy efficient end uses. And what I would say is that the catapult increasingly can make its case in the context of that overall energy system. No one component can deliver this net zero future, but the key components are the sources, the grid, and the energy conversion. And if we don't start delivering by 2030, the stretch to 2050 is gonna be extremely challenging. So for me, it's not about the next 25 years. Of course, that is true in the journey to net zero. It's what has to be done in the next seven years. Looking beyond 2030, what do you think the art of the possible is for UK deployment content and economic opportunity? Well, we need the systems architect to start with. I think that's starting to come through with things like the holistic network design that's recently been published and accepted. We see great work done by your sister catapult, the energy systems catapult, envisaging what energy systems architecture should look like over the next 25 years. But as a simple engineer, I'm very keen to get going and to learn by doing. And we really need to get the low regrets investments made as quickly as possible. Regardless of whatever future we might have in 2050, electrification systems for transport 
key, a hydrogen infrastructure that uses green energy to drive the electrolysis process to produce hydrogen for either high temperature industrial processes or transport or other applications is key. And having that reliable low carbon system, which will of course be led by renewables, but I also believe we need a system that has the next fleet of nuclear generators that sit alongside that. And we need hydrogen conversion and we need grid scale storage and we need to imagine what the energy system is going to look like as it evolves over the next 20 years. I'm a great believer in sometimes inverting the challenge to give you some new ways of looking at things. So we could be thinking of very much more deeply embedded and distributed energy sources. A hundred years ago, almost a hundred years ago now, the Electricity Supply Act in the UK was produced, led by a Scotsman, Lord Weir, who took a commission from the UK government to imagine the creation of an electric gridiron of connections, hence the grid. We need that same set of visionary commitments to imagining what the electrical system and the energy system at large looks like. And having designed it and understand where we're trying to get to and future-proof it because we need to remain agile because new technologies will emerge over the next decade plus. But we have to start by building the building blocks. Low carbon grid, a network of offshore wind and onshore wind capabilities, companion sources such as nuclear, uh, and then we need to start now. So, you know, I would say that every great journey starts not just by a single step, but every great journey starts out by knowing where you're trying to get to. And the catapult is an important role of trying to define that future. Thank you very much. We will definitely take that on board <laughs> and do whatever we can. So, Sir Jim, thank you so much for taking part in this episode of In Conversation with a series of Re-Energize. It's now time to de-energize until next month. In the meantime, listeners can find out more about ORE Catapult activities at ore.catapult.org.uk. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at ORE Catapult and now on Instagram at ore.catapult.org.uk.